So happy new year. Are you feeling any different yet? Yes. <laughs> Good. Glad to hear it. Oh my gosh. It's a new year, 2021. And uh, most of us would probably agree that we couldn't have it come fast enough. This last year has just been so difficult, so painful, so much loss. And yet at the same time, we realize that we're just crossing an artificial line here. Um, there, there's nothing real about it. Um, and yet it means everything to us as human beings. I remember when Mary and I were first married, the apartment we had was right next to or part of a turkey vulture kind of compound commune. They're all up in the eucalyptus trees. And every morning, I love to watch them. They'd sit there, you know, and they'd just wait until it got warm enough, and then they'd fly off, hit the thermals, and go off to the office every day, you know? And sometimes when it was raining, they just sat there all depressed looking. But they never knew what day it was, you know? They got up on Sunday, just like they got up on Monday, and they did their thing. It was just light, and it was dark, light, and dark, light, and dark. They didn't know the difference, you know? That's what it really is in terms of the way that the planets spin and everything. There is no change. But in our minds, it's a big deal. And it should be a big deal. We need to have milestones and markers that mark the, just the changes in our lives. And even though that we know nothing is magically going to change at the beginning of this year, we are hoping and praying for a new trajectory, right? A new direction, a new way forward. With such a year of loss behind us, that was absolutely unimaginable 10 months ago. I mean, 10 months ago, did we have, did you have any clue, any inkling that we were going to have the last 10 months that we've had? And because of that, 10 months now, I remember I thought it was going to last about three weeks and we'd be open for Easter, you know, 10 months of this has created a mindset. It's created a way of thinking in us. I'm starting to call it fatalistically cynical. How's that? I kind of like that. Fatalistically cynical. It kind of rolls off the tongue. We've been programmed now. We've been programmed for loss in these 10 months. And that's not going to go away even when the year changes over, clicks over, and even when circumstances change, if and when they do. They will change. But that programming is going to lag behind. That programming is not going to automatically change because the circumstances change. And just about, uh, I don't know, four or five nights ago, our little dog, I call, I call her Runer, um, went out into the back to do her business like she does every night, you know, just bolted out there, went out, and then all of a sudden, Marion and I just hear her screaming, jumping up, what the heck's going on? She comes back in, she's covered in blood, and we're trying to tend to her and deal with her, and Something got her out there, you know. I don't know what it was, if it's a big rat, because she's not very big herself, a raccoon. And then her son-in-law said, oh, I think it made me an owl. And I'm thinking, no, it's not an owl. How could it be an owl? And then I'm walking the dogs last night, and I'm hearing, owls everywhere. It's like, yeah, maybe it was an owl. Those things, completely silent when they swoop in, right? They got the fringes on the feathers. And we were, Mary and I were looking at her again and saying, yeah, there could be puncture marks from the talons. And maybe it was an owl. Poor thing. She never knew what hit her. Just all of a sudden, trink, you know. But she got away. But guess what now? The owls are gone, and she still won't go out into the backyard. <laughs> Open up the door. She looks at it, turns around, and comes back in. I go out with her, and she comes out one step, looks at me, 
goes back in. You know, the programming is already there from one incident. It's not going to go away because the owl's not there, because the raccoon's not there, whatever, it's not there. The programming is really hard to change once it gets in there. And it's impossible if we're not even trying. You know, a couple of, I don't know how long ago, a few weeks ago, I was using the metaphor of Hotel California. You know, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave because it's a way of thinking. It's a state of being is what they're trying to get across. And I think Billy Joel has the song for us now. It's a New York state of mind, right? We got to make sure that we don't have a 2020 state of mind as we're moving into 2021. We have to realize that we have been programmed and it's going to take some time for us to turn that ship. But if we're not trying consciously, intentionally, to turn the ship, then of course it's not going to turn. The programming is going to keep reinforcing itself, triggering us to do things that reinforce the programming if we're not consciously aware that we can choose our response to the emotion, our response to the trigger, which we can't control. I was just talking to Nina. And Frank was just telling you that she had that car accident. She's still obviously in the hospital. And she's been in the hospital for, what, about three weeks now, and at least has a couple more to go. Traumatic, you know, um, accident. And I texted her, and I, I just asked for her address to confirm her address, her snail mail address. I said, I need to send you a letter. She texts right back to me and says, okay, here's my address, but what's this letter about? You know, I, I can't think of anything that this letter would about, except maybe it's some huge tax bill or something. I'm not going to be able to sleep if you don't tell me. Please call, text me right back and tell me what the letter is about. <laughs> Programmed <laughs> for waiting for the next shoe to drop, you know? That wouldn't, wouldn't have normally been her first response. I was sending her a thank you letter for her gift for the for the uh, Giving Tuesday campaign. That was, but see what happens to us? See what happens when we get programmed. Now, my story, a little bit here. In the last month, I've had four deaths that were close to me. Um, Tom Wickersham, who was a longtime member here and moved back to Georgia. And then... Uh, a suicide of a young man, 32 years old, that I had counseled only once, and we had planned on more counseling, and he ran out of runway. And then my cousin died, a kid that I grew up with you know, up in uh, Santa Maria. And then um, Aaron, who you may know, Aaron Kearns, his mother died of cancer. And then right on the heels of that, Nina and Angelo have their accident. And right on the heels of that, our dog gets attacked by a owl or something. I don't know what. And then right after that, come down to greet Marion when she's coming home from work, and there's water dripping from the light fixtures because the plumbing overflowed up in the bathroom above. And it's like, when I saw that, it's like, well, of course. Of course. Yeah. Come on. What else now? I'm only two days away from the end of this year. What else can happen? You know, it's like you get programmed. You see what has happened, and then you expect it to keep happening. And if we're not careful, it becomes self-fulfilling prophecy. It is so easy to fall into that. You know, Wednesday night, um, I had the opportunity, actually the honor to be able to speak to both of the parents of the young man who took his own life a couple of weeks before in succession, first the father and then the mother. And as you can imagine, it was a difficult conversation. 
I knew going in, you know, I just tried to prepare myself for whatever I was going to hear and the emotions. And, and of course, they're in agonizing grief right now. And um, with all the, the sense of loss, but also the regret and the recriminations, we process suicide differently than we process natural or accidental deaths. And, and I went through the Rolodex myself. What did I miss? You know, what could I have done? Should I have tried more? You know, I called him back. He, we scheduled a, a follow-up, but then he canceled it. We scheduled another follow-up. It was too late. Was there something more I could have done? Imagine to be the parents and what they're going through right now, what they're thinking about. What could I say to them? I mean, I knew that there was nothing I could say that was going to fix the situation. There's nothing I could say that would make them feel better. There's nothing I should be able to say that could make them feel better. The depth of their grief points to the depth of their love and the relationship for their son. The two follow hand in glove. There's nothing we can say to take that away. But what I could do when the conversation moved into a place where they could talk is to say there is a way forward. There is a path that you can follow that will move you through what it is that you're feeling. Whenever we encounter the loss of something that is dear to us, grief is the process that we go through. And you know all about the stages of grief, I'm sure, from the denial to the the bargaining to the anger and the depression on the way to acceptance. But these agonizing emotions means that the love was real, means that we really let this person, this puppy, you know, uh, even, even this job into our hearts. We connected with it. It was dear to us in a way that its loss is felt so acutely. We've got to feel those emotions. If we're going to move through the grief, you must feel the emotions. We can't end run them. We can't numb them. We can't stuff them. We have to feel them. But we don't have to respond to them. And that's the key. Each one of those emotions will trigger us to do something that will reinforce the emotion. These emotions, they have like a will of their own. They want to survive. You know, If you're depressed, you're going to be triggered to isolate. You're going to be triggered not to do the things that you used to love to do because they just hold nothing for you. Everything is grayed out. If you're triggered by anger, you're going to want to lash out. But if we can consistently be aware enough in the moment, we can choose always in the direction of connection. And when we can do that, then we're still feeling the emotion, but we're moving through it to the only place that we will get the comfort and the healing, which is in connection. Connection with each other, connection with everything that's around us. It's always choosing to move in the direction of connection. If we stay connected, life returns. If we stay connected, life resumes. And more than that, life grows again in new directions that we couldn't even really have imagined before the tragedy. And life starts to make a different kind of sense as we move through that, as we come out to the other side, as we reconnect. There's a meaning that starts to take shape, kind of like a figure resolving out of the mist. We don't see it right away. 
And what people always say, what these parents said is, this makes no sense. Why did God allow this? I mean, all the things that you would expect. There's no meaning. There's no sense to it. But as they move through, as we have all moved through, if you have, through the difficulties and the losses in your life, you see something on the other side that you could never see. Now, how could I say this to them? How could I say this with such conviction? Because I believe this down to my socks. Well, it's three days now to the fifth anniversary of Lenny Rosenbaum's death, who took his own life five years ago, January 6, 2016. And I know this is starting to get kind of dark here, but just stay with me because we're turning a corner here. I'm just setting you up, right? Lenny was one of my closest friends. He was a lot of our closest friends. He was the light in every room when he walked in usually with his two little dogs because he would never part with them. He was eccentric. He was, he was funny. He always knew the right thing to say that would just lighten the mood and bring the group back into a cohesion. It was just a shock, an absolute shock to every one of us because nobody saw it coming. And we all agonized in that same way. What could we have done? How could we have missed this? What could we have changed? Why didn't he reach out? You know, how did we miss this? All those recriminations. But what we chose to do, both as a small circle and as a community, was to circle the wagons. We circled the wagons around each other, and we especially circled the wagons around Sharon. Sharon Stansifer, who was his girlfriend at the time, who was just as shocked as everybody else. Had no idea, because he didn't tell her. We circled the wagons around Sharon. We circled the wagons around Lenny's family who reached out to us. First time I met Lenny's family was when we were sitting around our, we had a, a table up here on the other side on the second floor in our, in our conference room. We all sat down, his whole family, to plan his memorial service. First time I'd met them. And I'd known him five or six years, but he kind of compartmentalized, you know. And I fell in love with his family. His family, you know, Lenny was kind of uh, just a more emphatic statement of the rest of the family's personality, you know? They all had this quirkiness to them. They were just lovely, wonderful people. And one of them, Kathy, who lives in uh, Carlsbad, she's stuck. She has become this huge part of our community. She has become a real pillar here. It's, it's, she's the kind of person now that we can't imagine doing this without. And it's only because of this connection that happened through this tragedy that we all connected in this way. A year ago, almost to the day, um, Kathy wrote me a text, and I put it in a message back then, four years ago, and I want to put it in the message today because what she wrote was so right on point. She said, I was pondering. <laughs> in a year, I lost a brother who I loved, but I gained a friend who I adore. Go figure. God's odd way of strange beauty and that phrase, strange beauty, stuck to my brain like flypaper, you know? Strange beauty. I love that. The oxymoron of it, the paradox of it, the strange beauty. That's it. Who could have seen what new life would come out of this tragedy? Who could have seen the connections that happened? The friend that she's talking about is Sharon, Lenny's girlfriend. The two of them 
every time they were together, they were just like on each other, just talking, talking, talking. After every one of our, our uh, events, you could find them out in the parking lot, continuing to talk for another half hour. I got to the point where I'd always come up to them and say, sisters, sisters, they were never such devoted, you know, because they were just like sisters. They were just joined at the hip, and they still are to this day. Such close friends. They helped take each other through the grief. They showed that there was meaning even to the tragedy that had happened and befallen both of them because new life and this community and the friendships that, that Kathy has made. Why? Because she chose to act in the direction of connection. She didn't isolate. She didn't drop back. She moved forward from that day around the, con- the conference table to this day now. She has continued to choose connection with all of us. And we've all been touched by her attention and her generosity and, and just her willingness to be in relationship. New life, healing, still hurts. To think of Lenny still hurts. And I know it still hurts Sharon. I know it still hurts Kathy and her family. And yet new life, choosing in the direction of connection always. But even that hurt when it comes is overshadowed now with gratitude. Gratitude for the time that we had with Lenny. Not just the pain that it was cut short, but gratitude for the new friends that we may not have ever met otherwise. And for the deepening that only grief can create in us in our hearts, in our spirits. That deepening that allows us now to comfort other people, to speak with absolute conviction about the way through. Not the way to make it go away, but the way through. In ways that were not possible before. All of this happens when we continue to choose in the direction of connection. After a year of loss like this, many of us are grieving. And you don't necessarily think about it that way. But think of how much you've lost this year. The loss of your ability to connect with your family and friends. The loss maybe of work, loss of revenue, loss of trust in government institutions, just in the fabric of life. You probably know people who've gotten sick. You know people who have died. You know families that have disintegrated, possibly, because that has happened rampantly through the lockdown. This has been a year of real loss. Some people proclaim that they've kind of, you know, moved right through, and God bless them. But I know a lot more of us are actually grieving the loss of this last year. And we've been programmed for more loss. And you cannot take that lightly. We're kind of like little dogs, afraid to go out in the backyard. We're kind of like Nina now, always waiting for the next shoe to drop always expecting a car to come out of the darkness and just turn her life absolutely upside down. We're programmed for this. Now, what if this year changes for the better? Will we be able to change with it? Or are we going to hang on to our 2020 state of mind? What if this year doesn't change quickly enough for us? Can we manage to change anyway? even if the circumstances are not playing along. You see, right now here at the beginning of this year, we got a choice to make. 
will we keep choosing in the direction of connection or maybe start choosing in the direction of connection after a year of isolation? Whatever the circumstances this month, this first quarter bring. If not, if we're not willing to do that, then the 2020 state of mind carries on. And 2021 will look exactly like what we expect it to look like, what we fear, and not what it really is. Jesus had a brilliant way of putting this very phenomenon. Take a look at Matthew 6, starting at verse 22. Brandon no doubt has it up there. Look how good he is. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Such a simple saying. Now the first part, the first verse we can read kind of literally, and it makes perfect sense, right? If your eye is good, you're clear, then you're going to see the light. If not, it's going to be darkness. It's the second verse that points to something else going on, something deeper. If the light that is in you is darkness, if the light is darkness, what, what is he talking about here? If the light is darkness that's in you, how great is that darkness? You see, in English... We can be sort of dimly aware that Jesus is pointing to a metaphor here, right? The second line clues us in big time. He's talking about something more than just physical light and a physical eye. But in Aramaic, in the language that he actually spoke, the metaphor is also literal. And this is something that we miss when we're just reading English. We forget that this ancient language, Hebrew and Aramaic, were layered with meaning. Each word was layered with meaning. And so what Jesus was saying made a whole different level of sense, but it's still literal. We can literally translate these words differently. And there's five words there we need to take a look at. And the first one is I, right? Aina in Aramaic. I. It means I, the way we think of an eye, a physical eye. But you know what it also means? It means appearance. It means face the face of things, the outer face. It means to look. It means a view. It means an opinion. It literally means a mindset. It's a way of looking. It's the filter that we have in place that allows us to see or not see, much more than just the eye, the opinion, the mindset. If that is clear, second word, peshita in Aramaic, that word, Peshitta, means simple, sincere, straight, and true. It's the word that the Aramaic speakers gave to their own Aramaic Bible, both the Old and New Testaments. The oldest Bible that we have that's dated is an Aramaic Peshitta. Notice the word that they used for it. This rendering, this translation, these words are simple, straight, true, sincere, clear but in that sense. And if our mindset is simple and sincere and straight and true, then the light will enter our body. That is nura, light in Aramaic. 
but it doesn't just mean light, physical light. What it also means is intelligence. It means clarity. It means illumination, elucidation. You see where this is going? If the light or the eye is bad, bisha, and we've talked about this one, taba and bisha, not just good and evil, but ripe and unripe. Bisha being evil or bad also means unripe, but it means unripe in the sense of immature, not ready for prime time, not ready to be able to perform to the design specifications. It means out of rhythm, out of time, disconnected, bisha. If the eye is disconnected and out of rhythm, if the mindset is not yet ready to be able to see what needs to be seen in a given moment, then the darkness takes over, hashuka. But it doesn't just mean darkness as in the absence of light. It means chaos. It means something that is disordered. It's swirling energies like wind and sea rather than the straight energies of the sun. When you look at these... What we're talking about is a way of seeing. We could literally translate this, that your mindset, your way of seeing, is the lamp of your body, of your whole psyche, of your consciousness. If your mindset, if your way of seeing is simple and sincere and true, think about it. If it's anavim, we've been talking about the anavim for weeks now. If our mindset has that humility, if it has that sense of connection, seeing everything and everyone on the equal plane, then your whole body will be full of this clarity, of this illumination, of this elucidation. But if your eye, if your mindset is unripe, if it's immature, then your whole body will be full of the chaos and the disorder that comes. Now the second part makes perfect sense. If then, right, that this elucidation in you is really chaos, really disordered, how great is that disorder, is that chaos? This is where Jesus is going. And the key to the whole understanding of this is Peshitta, simple, sincere, clear, straight, and true. That sense of anavim, the simplicity of seeing who we really are, who we really are, is dependent and vulnerable, like children. And what does this look like in a person? Jesus shows us just a few verses later at verse 26, still Matthew 6. He says, look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you so worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. And yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not worry then by saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek after all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. 
for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. <laughs> I love that last line. Now, we've all heard this one before, but I want you to try in your mind's eye to imagine the scene. You can even close your eyes for a minute now. Imagine Jesus with all his followers on a hillside someplace or maybe at the shore of the lake, somewhere in nature, beautiful nature, the sunshine streaming down, brilliant colors, air and breeze moving through. Now see Jesus' energy. See his excitement. See his childlike sincerity. It is so easy for us to get programmed into this idea of Jesus being a King James sort of character, always speaking in that stilted English, always staring up into heaven, ramrod straight, proper, hair all in place. But think of Jesus with this energy. Think of Jesus as the one who would play with children in the dirt of the streets. Think of Jesus saying, Peter, look at those birds. Isn't that cool? Can you imagine? They don't do any of the things that we do, and yet the Father cares for them. See him in that sort of sense. See how what he says and the way he says it, the conviction with which he speaks, belies all the time that he has spent in nature, watching nature, celebrating nature seeing the connections between everything that is and who he is and his Father's presence infusing it all, taking pleasure in nature, sleeping out under the stars, drinking from springs and brooks, living the way he lives. Try to see all this in a new way, to understand the passion with which Jesus is speaking. So much is communicated here between the lines if we just stop and take a look at what Jesus is talking about. He sees hope in something as simple as the birds doing what birds do. He sees significance in just flowers growing on a hillside that in two days will be gone again. He has developed the shepherd consciousness that allows him to see the significance in every moment, everything that is around him. This is key for us in our understanding of what is going on here. When we get scared, when we get hurt, when we lose someone or something that was like life to us, it was oxygen to us. We want to look for something that is equally huge to save us. If the grief, if the agonizing pain is so great, if the depression is so deep, then it's got to be something big that's going to pull us out, right? We look for something huge to save us, to protect us, to heal us, to make us whole again, to make us feel secure again. But Jesus is saying... It's not in the big things out there. It's in the tiny things that are right here, all around us. That's where the connection comes from. If we can lean in there, the healing starts to happen. 
The problem is, Jesus is saying, is not with the things out there. It's with your eye. It's with your mindset. It's with your opinion and the way that you are seeing them. Because the way through is already here. A couple of years ago, I got an email from someone who was really going through it. And she wrote to me, and we corresponded back and forth. And one little string I want to read for you today because I think it, maybe it'll hammer the point home. She wrote, panic buttons all on fire. Can you all relate? <laughs> panic buttons all on fire. But trying to trust just for this moment, trying to roll things over to God. I am part of the ocean. I am not the ocean. Anyway, that's the silly phrase that kept rolling through my head during my prayer time this morning. I am part of the ocean. I am not the ocean. I wrote back to her, when you say you're rolling things over to God, I'm wondering how you envision that working. I've made a shift in my thinking on this. I was taught and used to think that there was power that God was holding that I needed to somehow extract from him through prayer or worthiness or even just persistence. But what I've come to understand of God's love is that he's already given me everything there is to give. He's never and would never withhold anything from me. His decisions about and for me have already and always been made. So my prayers or efforts are no longer for God to release something to me sometime in the future, but to give me the strength, to give me the sight, to make the choice, and enact picking up what is already mine in this moment. It's still God's empowerment working through me, but takes me out of a passive position and into the hot seat in terms of deciding to act in partnership with God right now. This moment, writing to you, has been a decision to move beyond any funk or inadequacy I feel and use what is already present in me to try to make a difference. And it's helping. This moment. Next moment, after I hit send, will be another choice, another opportunity to do the same. Will I? I don't know. But if I don't, there's another moment coming right after. So yes, you're part of the ocean and not the ocean, but the ocean is already there. It's not one big solution. We may look for that. We may want that. We want to switch to flip. But Jesus is saying, it's not one big solution. It's always choosing in the direction of connection, moment by moment, right? Every time we choose, every time we look, every single moment has a choice. In fact, the way that you know that you're in a moment is because you got a choice to make. You can choose to lean in, you can choose to connect, or you can choose to hold back. God's love is always there. God's presence is always there like the sunshine. Can't do anything about it. It falls on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous alike. It moves in all directions. Can't attenuate it. Now, you can go stand in the shade if you want to. But that doesn't change the nature of the light. It is what it is. George, the, the, the father of the young man who took his life, he told me that he was best in these last couple of weeks when he was playing with his grandchildren. He felt best when he was helping his daughter move as she was moving to a, a new home. 
Choosing connection moment by moment is always the way through. It's funny how he didn't necessarily see that connection, that he felt better when he was connected in that way, when he was entering his children's world, his grandchildren's world down on the floor, and he felt finally a release. And the next moment, of course, it all comes crushing back down again. But that's the nature of it. Even as we're still grieving, as he's still agonizing, to choose connection, choose connection, choose connection is weaving like that string of pearls. We think it's all one thing, but it's not. It's moment by moment by moment, and finally you've got a necklace. You've got something that is characterized by connection because you keep choosing it. But every moment is the choice. Every moment we have to come back to that choice. It seems like Richard Rohr was on the same <laughs> track this week in his, uh, one of his contemplations, a little uh, emails that he sends out. He wrote this. Contemplation happens to everyone. It happens in moments when we are, it happens in moments when we are open, undefended, and immediately present. He quoted that from Gerald May. Contemplation happens in moments when we are, o- when we are open, undefended, and immediately present. Roar writes, after 50 years of practicing contemplation, my immediate response to most situations still includes attachment, defensiveness, judgment, control, analysis. I am better at calculating than contemplating. A good New Year's practice for us would be to admit that most of us start there. The false self seems to have the first gaze at almost everything. On my better days, when I'm open, undefended, and immediately present, in other words, choosing in the direction of connection, I can sometimes begin with a contemplative mind and heart. Most of the time I can get there later and even end there, but it is usually a second gaze. The true self seems to always be ridden and blinded by the defensive needs of the separate self. It's an hour-by-hour battle, at least for me, I can see why all spiritual traditions insist on some form of daily prayer. In fact, morning, midday, evening, and before we go to bed, prayer would be a good idea too. Otherwise, we can assume that we will fall right back in the cruise control of small and personal self-interest, the pitiable and fragile smaller self. Day by day, hour by hour, moment-by-moment choices that we make to enter simply into the moment and to connect or not. Each choice, though, that we make to enter these small moments make our eye more clear, make our mindset more peshita, more simple, more sincere, more straight, more true, more anavim, and more grateful. That's the key. Can we hit the gratitude? The ancient liturgies that we've been talking about, at least talked about last week, always had calls to prayer, always had calls back to awareness, to presence. What were the church bells all about that rang at intervals throughout the day, but to call people throughout the village back to that mindset of prayer, and sometimes calling them to the church? to corporately connect with each other in prayer. We need to create our own personal liturgies for ourselves, 
our own personal calls to prayer, to reconnection, if we want to drop this 2020 state of mind, drop the baggage that we've been maybe carrying around for 30, 40, 50 years, if we really want to move through, if we really want to heal, this is what it looks like. This is what it takes. It can come from all sorts of directions. There's a little bird. I don't know if it's the same one or different ones, but my office is in a loft, and it's got windows all around. And I was sitting there one day, and all of a sudden I hear, tap, 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 tap. And I'm looking around, what is that? You know, are the pipes starting to bang? What's going on here? And it took me a few minutes to realize there's a little bird sitting on the ledge of one of the windows, and I don't know if he can see his reflection or what he's doing out there, but he's tapping, tap, 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 tap. And then the next time it happened, a few days later, I happened to look at my phone, and it was 11-11. You know, these repeating numbers, this is something that Marion and I, it's become a, a kind of a, a running thing with us now, because she noticed it first. That some, every time she looked at the clock, it was 11-11, or it was 1-11, or it was 1-22, but the repeating numbers, and then we all both started, and then I'd see it, and I'd call her, and she'd see it, and she'd call me, and then I looked it up on the internet, and it's like it's a thing. People seen repeating numbers, and what does it mean? Does it mean anything? I don't know if it means anything, but it means something to me. And being able to play back and forth with Marion, it's a call back to awareness. It's a call to reconnection. It's a call to just God's hand, you know, on the shoulder, at the small of the back. And this bird tapping and looking at 111. So the next time I heard it, I quickly looked at the clock. It was another significant number, another repeating number. And for like several weeks, every time the bird tapped, it was a significant number. And it became a thing. To hear that bird tapping became, for me, a call back to prayer. Now, he's been doing it again, and he's, he's all messed up on the clock. He's not doing it anymore, you know. Because I looked and said, eh, 426, that doesn't really ring a bell. It doesn't matter. It still brings me back to that wondrous little child saying, isn't this cool? It makes me smile every time I hear that bird going, and then I have to find him. And it just brings, takes me out of whatever I'm doing and brings me back in again. It's a call to prayer. It's a call to awareness. It's a call to reconnection, reconciliation with God. And I know that it probably sounds silly and maybe childish and, and kind of Pollyanna-ish or anything, especially if you really are going through it right now, that something as small as this can have an effect. But I'll tell you what, no matter how bad you're feeling, anything that can make you smile has broken the spell. Anything that can make you laugh has taken you somewhere outside into a moment of reconnection that is profound if you will let it be. And to string enough of those together, remember, all we got to get to is 51%. 51%. It's not about perfection. It's about just getting over that line where that more often than not, you are sitting there listening to that bird tapping on the window and not everything else that runs through your mind on a constant basis. I was having a little cup of coffee with a friend of mine out in downtown San Juan earlier this week. And we're sitting there outside, and the sun came out from behind a cloud, and it's shining through the trees. And you know when the sun just hits your face, and it's so warm, and it just feels like, I don't know. I think about those, those warm, wet 
towels they used to put on you before you get your head shaved or something. I don't know. It was just like this caress. And we're sitting there, we're talking, and the coffee was great. And you know, just looked at my friend, and I said, you know what? It doesn't get any better than this. This moment, right here, with the world spinning in chaos, with the problems that he's facing, the problems that I'm facing, none of those circumstances have changed. And yet, I'm sitting there with the sun on my face and a good friend across the table and a cup of warm joe. It doesn't get any better than that. Can we let it be enough? Can we look at our moments and see how they are enough if we just let them be? Can we change our eye? Can we change our mindset to be simple and true and straight so that these moments can get in and see that they are just perfect. They are just enough for us. And if we can do this, if we can let our eyes become Peshitta, let them become Anavim, then our whole body will be full of that clarity, of that illumination, of that awareness of presence. And 2021 will be a very good year, regardless of what happens on the outside. This is where Jesus is trying to take us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the seemingly random things that happen. That if we're paying attention, are not random at all to us, but can be deeply significant to us. That can be calls back to prayer, calls back to you, and the awareness of your presence all around us. Make us more sensitive to these things. Make us more willing to look at life from three feet off the ground the way a child would and see all the things that we miss at 60 miles an hour from five or six feet off the ground. Father, lower our perspective. Open up our hearts. Allow us to be open and undefended and vulnerable and dependent enough to see the joy in the simplest things that happen so that nothing needs to change in order for us to know that we are your children and we have a seat at the table. Thank you for this new year as we started. We do pray for our, our world, our nation, our communities, and the turmoil that they're going through, and for the people who are really struggling through all of this, including ourselves. But we mostly pray for a change of mind and heart that will allow us to see you in the new year regardless. Thank you, Father. Never let us forget. We can only do any of this in love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.